I'd like for us to open this morning to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. And we'll read from verse 1 over into chapter 2, verse 4. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He, that is the Son, He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as He has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did He ever say, You are My Son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. Talking about the law of Moses there. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, the Lord Jesus, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. Let's pray once again. <clears throat> Lord, we just confess that this is Your Word. And so we ask for Your Spirit to help us understand these things. In Jesus' name, Amen. Lord willing, the message this morning will be the first message in a four-part series from the book of Hebrews that I'll be giving over the next several weeks while Charles is out in Colorado. And the title of the series is Stopping Spiritual Drift, which comes from chapter 2, verse 1 right here. He says, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. And if you're using the NASB like I am, you'll notice that the from it there on the end is actually not in the Greek. It's literally just so that we do not drift away. And so that's what we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks. So today, then, will basically be an introduction to this whole thing, and then over the next several weeks, we'll expand on the ground that we uh, cover this morning. And so what we're going to do this morning, then, is we're going to think about spiritual drift itself. What is it? What causes it? And what are the consequences of it? And there is a lot in the book of Hebrews about this topic because the believers addressed in the book of Hebrews were in danger of drifting away from the gospel themselves. They were primarily believers who had come from a Jewish background and come to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but shortly after their conversion, they had started to experience some persecution, and we're going to read about that here in a minute. But as a result of this persecution, many of them were starting to have doubts about this whole Christianity thing, and you can kind of imagine what they might have been thinking. You know, maybe, maybe it'd be better just to go back to being a, a good Jew. You know, we can still relate to God on the basis of the sacrificial system. We can still relate to God through the priests. Do we really need all of this? Do we, is this really worth it? And over and over again, the author of Hebrews exhorts 
these drifting believers that there is no more relating to God on the basis of the Old Covenant. There's no more relating to God on the basis of the Jewish system of priests and sacrifices. The Jewish priests are no more because the one great priest has come, and his name is Jesus. The Jewish sacrifices have been rendered meaningless because the one true great sacrifice, once for all time, has come, and his name is Jesus. If you want a one-verse commentary on the entire book of Hebrews, John 14.6 would be a good one. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You see, there's no going back to anything else. All of the old covenant shadows that had gone before were rendered worthless because the substance of everything. The Lord Jesus Christ has come. The only way you can relate to God now is through Him, not through any earthly priests, earthly sacrifices. Paul says there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. But these Hebrew believers weren't getting the message here in the book of Hebrews. And so this letter was written to them in order to rebuke them, to exhort them, to hold fast their confidence in Christ, and to warn them time and again, to warn them that if they went back to trusting in the Jewish sacrifices and the Jewish rituals, if they drew back, if they fell away, they would perish. And one of those warnings, there are several in the book, but one of those warnings is right here, Chapter 2, he says, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels, talking about the old covenant there, proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, so Jesus came preaching this salvation, and then it was confirmed to us, these Hebrew believers, by people who heard it from the Lord, right? God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles, gifts of the Spirit according to His own will. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention so that we do not drift away. And I love the imagery here because it's such a perfect illustration of the Christian life. In a lot of ways, becoming a Christian is like getting onto a boat and heading off on a destination to a distant land. And usually when you first begin the journey, and isn't this true for most new Christians, when you start the journey, the sky is blue, the sun is shining, you know, the, the wind is behind you and the sails are going and everything is great, and you think, man, this being a Christian is great. You know, I love this. This is, this is great. Smooth sailing. But then something changes, and usually sooner rather than later it changes, and you begin to realize that there are actually forces at work opposing your progress. There are actually forces at work that are attempting to keep you from reaching your destination. Forces that someone has called the unholy trinity, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so you're out there on your boat, and all of a sudden these winds start blowing you off course, or trying to blow you off course. There's an ocean current underneath your boat pulling you backward. A storm arises. There's waves beating against the boat, again, pushing you backward. And all the while, there's thoughts inside of your own mind. Go back. Go back. It's too dangerous. You can't make it. You're going to perish out here. Go back. Go back to where it's safe. Turn back now before it's too late. Or perhaps the thoughts are a little more subtle, urging you to just take it easy for a while. You know, rest a bit. You don't always need to be at the wheel steering this thing. Rest a bit. Put that compass away. Lie down. Take a nap. You're tired. It can use a nice nap. Or here's a good one. God is sovereign and He's in control. You don't, you don't have to sail this thing. He'll sail it for you. He's already predestined that you'll make it to your destination, so you can just sit back and relax. Rest, weary traveler, rest. God will take care of it. And while that might sound good on the surface, statements like that are half-truths, and they will lead a person straight to hell. I'm telling you this morning that there are forces at work that are blowing and pushing and pulling you backwards. And if you simply fall asleep at the wheel, those forces will cause you to drift off course, guaranteed. 
And unless you wake up and do something about it, you will keep on drifting, gradually, gradually, gradually drifting until you crash. And that's what happened, remember, to Hymenaeus and Alexander there in 1 Timothy 1.19. It says they made shipwreck of the faith. You see the imagery there again. They drifted, they drifted, bam, shipwreck of the faith. Now the temptation is to think that it can't happen here. After all, I mean, we have good pastors, solid teaching week after week, but do not be deceived. We have good elders who feed us the gospel, but these Hebrew believers heard the gospel from people who had heard it from Christ Himself. Verse 3, it says, After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard from Jesus, you see. They heard the gospel from people who had heard it from Christ Himself. That's a pretty pure gospel you're getting. Not only that, the gospel was confirmed to them, verse 4, by signs and wonders and various miracles. So they had heard the gospel from people who had been with Christ Himself, and the gospel was confirmed to them with signs and wonders and miracles. I mean, we get good teaching here, but I can't remember the last time Charles and Dick were performing signs and wonders in our midst. And yet, that's what they saw. And yet, they were still in danger of drifting away from what they had heard. So surely it can happen here as well. You can't coast into the kingdom. You can't drift toward holiness. Believe me, if you could, I'd be the holiest person you knew. But it doesn't work that way. You can't drift towards holiness. We've got to run and press on and discipline ourselves. Take hold of the eternal life set before us. And so with the rest of our time then this morning, I want us to consider several different causes of spiritual drift, and then what we're going to do towards the very end is briefly consider some of the consequences of, of drifting. And I had said earlier that there are three primary forces that are at work against the Christian, which the Bible calls the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that's kind of a summary statement of them. Uh, and if we want to talk about causes of spiritual drifting, really, you could summarize everything with those three. You kind of have another similar sort of summary statement in Jesus' parables of the soils with the seed being cast on the different soils. And then he talks about the seed sown among the thorns. And in Mark 4, he says, These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So there again is another kind of summary statement of some of these forces that are at work in the life of a believer to push them back, to cause them to drift. But those are kind of general sort of terms that can easily be broken down into more specific things. And that's what I want us to do this morning. We'll consider briefly seven specific causes of spiritual drift. Five of those are from within the book of Hebrews itself, and then we'll look at a couple from elsewhere in the New Testament. So seven causes of spiritual drift. The first one is trials and persecutions. And I had mentioned earlier that one of the main reasons why these Hebrew Christians were, were drifting away from the gospel was because of persecution. And let's turn to that here in Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 32 He says, remember the former days when after being enlightened, after hearing the gospel, believing the gospel, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners, so some of them are thrown into prison, and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Some people had things stolen from them. Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. And so they received, or they participated in trials sufferings here. Some of them were thrown in prison. Some of them had things stolen from them and so on. 
But trials and persecutions can take many forms. And Paul tells us, 2 Timothy 3.12, that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And then in Acts 14.22, again, Paul says, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And not only is that true of us, but it was also true for the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. It's talking about Jesus here. It says, Although He was a son, He learned obedience from the things which He suffered. And having been made perfect... He became to all those who obey Him the source of eternal salvation. Now that is an amazing verse. That is an amazing passage. Christ Himself had to learn obedience. What do you think about that? He had to learn obedience. It doesn't mean He was ever disobedient, you see, but it's something you grow in. Without without even ever disobeying, you still grow. You can still grow in obedience, and that's what he did. He grew in obedience. And how did he learn obedience? It says he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And if that is true of our Lord and Master, how much more is it true of us who follow in His footsteps? But you see, the problem is that we so often misinterpret our experiences, and we misunderstand the trials and the tribulations that we're suffering. And that was what was happening here to these believers in the book of Hebrews. They had suffered for the gospel, but they were beginning to grow weary in the face of suffering. They were beginning to lose heart in the face of suffering. And so what does the author tell them to do? We'll turn to chapter 12, verse 3. They were growing weary and losing heart as a result of their suffering. So the author says here, Consider him, Jesus, Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So you're not going through anything that Christ hasn't already gone through, in other words. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. See, the discipline He's talking about here is trials, sufferings. And He scourges every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom His Father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For, if they, for they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You see what he does here. They're growing weary in the face of suffering. And he says, look, don't grow weary and lose heart. Your heavenly Father is the one who is behind the sufferings that you are enduring. He's orchestrating these sufferings in your life. And they're not a sign of his displeasure, but they're a token of his great love for you. He's disciplining you for your good, that you might share his holiness. And afterward, the suffering will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And then he goes on to give the exhortation, verse 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. You see the connection there. These sufferings are for your good. Therefore, strengthen the things that hang down. Strengthen the limbs that are weak. And so on. But like the believers here in Hebrews, many Christians can and do misinterpret their trials. They grow weary in the face of trials and persecutions and sufferings because they don't understand that God is the one who is behind them and that He's orchestrating them out of love for their good. Discouragement in that way can lead to drifting and even falling away in the case of some. Second cause of of drifting is unbelief and hard-heartedness. And I'm putting these two together because they're really two sides of the same coin. And we can see this back in Hebrews chapter 3. 
unbelief and hard-heartedness as a cause of drifting. Chapter 3 and verse 12 He says, take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, so there's unbelieving, that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened, see there's hardness, by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. There's hardness again. As when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. See, it just goes back and forth between unbelief and hard-heartedness. Therefore, let us fear, if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. Just like Dick was talking about at the beginning of the meeting this morning. Simply hearing it is not enough. There has to be faith, you see. You have, it has to be united with faith. Again, notice how unbelief and hard-heartedness are basically interchangeable. The unbelieving heart of verse 12 is the hardened heart of verse 15. You can't drift away from Christ without hardening your heart. You can't do it. Because the whole time that you're drifting away, Christ is calling out to you, come back, come back, repent, return. Come unto me and I will give you rest. Come back. You see, you have to deliberately harden your heart against the voice of Christ in order to drift away. There's no other way you can, because He's calling out to you all the time. And if you're here this morning and you're beginning to drift, do not harden your heart against the voice of your Lord. See, that's what the exhortation here is in Hebrews 3. If today you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. But realize, too, that simply hearing His Word is not enough. The Word must be united with faith. Again, chapter 4, verse 2, The Word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. I mean, simply letting the truth wash over you is not going to do it. It has to be united with faith. And I'll be the first to admit that faith, to me, is a mysterious thing. I mean, how does faith begin? How does faith grow? Why does it seem to fluctuate in different people's lives? Some people have strong faith. Some people have weak faith. Why? It's a mysterious thing in some ways. But I can tell you this morning that simply hearing truth is not enough. The truth must meet with faith in your heart. Not simply hearing, but believing in, trusting in, counting on, resting in, taking a stand on. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. The gospel upon which you stand, taking a stand upon it, putting your weight on it. Standing on what God has said because He's all-knowing and absolutely trustworthy and that no one who trusts in Him will be disappointed. Romans 10. No one who puts their trust in Him will be disappointed. And if no matter what you do, you seem to find yourself sinking beneath the waves, then just cry out as Peter did, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. Because praise God, that's enough. That cry is enough. Unbelief and hard-heartedness will lead to drifting, but Peter's desperate cry can get a person back on course. Lord, save me. Third cause of spiritual drifting is prayerlessness. And one of the reasons why the book of Hebrews has so much teaching in it on prayer is because prayer is one of the main ways that we can fight spiritual drift. But if prayer keeps a person from drifting, then the opposite is just as true. Prayerlessness will lead to drifting. You can mark it down every time. That's why the author of Hebrews is so eager to tell these struggling believers about this great high priest that they have who has passed through the heavens. He's eager to encourage them over and over again to draw near, draw near. The holiest of holies is open. The veil's been torn in two. Draw near, draw near. And like faith, prayer remains a mystery to me, but one thing I do know 
is you either pray or you drift. That's the bottom line. Pray or drift. It's as simple as that. And Lord willing, we'll talk more about that in a couple of weeks. But before we move on, I did want to give a quick exhortation here regarding the prayer meeting. Because there have been many times, uh, and I stress the many, since coming to Lake Road that I have simply not wanted to go to prayer meeting. Didn't want to do it. I felt cold and lifeless and distant from the Lord, and about the last thing I wanted to do was spend an hour hour and a half praying just didn't feel like it and many times I ended up at the prayer meeting by sheer force of will but the thing is almost every single time beloved I've left the prayer meeting with a fresh sense of God's love a fresh sense of God's grace and a renewed desire to want to press on with the Lord it was prayer that stopped the drift you see And so I just want to say this before we move on. Beloved, if it is at all possible, get yourself to the prayer meeting. If it is at all possible, get yourself to the prayer meeting. You have no right to complain about the spiritual drift taking place in your own life if you willingly neglect the prayer meeting. Now, I realize that some people here have to miss the prayer meeting. You miss it unwillingly, and that's one thing. And you don't have to despair because God will make that up to you. He knows, and He'll make that up to you. But it's another thing altogether to willingly neglect the prayer meeting. It's going to hurt you. You're going to drift because of that. We all need to examine ourselves in that matter. Number four cause of spiritual drift is lack of fellowship. One of the clearest indicators that a person is drifting is he or she begins to withdraw from other believers. You notice that he no longer comes to the prayer meeting after being a regular attender for a long time. He begins to miss Wednesday night meetings. Soon he begins to leave the Sunday meetings immediately after the sermon is over, not sticking around for the meal, not sticking around for fellowship. Doesn't answer phone calls or emails like he used to. Begins to avoid contact with other believers. All of those things are a sign that a person is drifting away from the Lord because you can't drift away from God without at the same time drifting away from His people. The two go hand in hand. One person said that perseverance is a community project. And you will not persevere in the Christian life apart from fellowship. You will not. Hear me. You will not. Because Fellowship is one of the main ways that God keeps His people persevering. We can see this. We just read it here, but let's read it again. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Well, how do you keep from falling away? Next verse. But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So how do you keep from falling away? How do you hold fast your assurance firm until the end? Well, sandwiched right between those two things is fellowship. Encourage one another day after day. It's right there. And if you feel your heart becoming hard, ask yourself, what kind of fellowship have I been getting lately? Am I making it a point to seek out other believers for fellowship? And am I striving to not withdraw from other believers when they come to me offering fellowship, asking me questions about how I'm doing? You know, those uncomfortable questions that you don't want to answer because you know you're not doing very well. Another thing, simply getting together with other Christians does not equal fellowship, unfortunately. It should lead to fellowship, and it could lead to fellowship, but simply being in the presence of other Christians does not necessarily equal fellowship. There has to be a sharing of the things of God, you see. There has to be a discussion about spiritual truth. There has to be sharing of burdens, encouragements, exhortations. I enjoy getting together with other Christians just around a meal or to watch a good movie every once in a while, but at some point you've got to put the remote away and get the Bibles out. or There's no fellowship, you see. Again, perseverance is a community project, and it takes real spirit-led times of meeting and fellowship to ensure that believers stay on course and don't drift. 
To neglect that is to neglect one of the primary ways that God keeps His people believing. And apparently the Hebrews here in this letter were in danger of this very thing because he he addresses it a couple of different times. The other time, we already read one there in chapter 3, but the other one is in chapter 10, so let's turn there. Some of you might remember that article that Conrad wrote several years ago based on some of these verses here from Hebrews 10, and in his typically subtle way, he titled the article, Go to Church or Go to Hell. (laughs) And that's shocking. But you see, it gets the point across. What was he trying to say? He's trying to say that apart from fellowship, apart from meeting together with other Christians, you're not going to make it. Now, I understand that there's extraordinary circumstances sometimes where there's no good fellowship around you, and there's ways God can make that up to you. But that's not our situation here. All right, chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Notice how the writer connects sinning willfully in verse 26 with forsaking our own assembling together in verse 25. In other words, one way that you can willfully sin is by neglecting to assemble together with other believers, neglecting fellowship. And as the following verses go on to show here, such neglect, if gone unchecked, will lead to the ruin of your soul because you cannot make it on your own. You can't. You just can't. I mean, we live in a culture that's so individualistic, it's so hard for us sometimes to grasp this point that we need other people constantly, and we're not going to make it otherwise. Number five, cause of spiritual drift, a lax attitude towards sin. A lax attitude towards sin. The mindset of too many Christians is something like this. How much can I get away with before I'm actually sinning? Or how close to the line can I get before I actually go over the line? And that kind of attitude is not fitting for a mature child of God. And a believer who never gets past that kind of mindset will be ripe for spiritual drift constantly. Always trying to toe the line. The attitude that we should have is illustrated in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 of Hebrews after talking about all these people of faith from the Old Testament, chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, all these people of faith that have gone before, surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance, not just some of them, you see, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. You see, the attitude here is striving to lay aside every encumbrance, anything that gets in the way. Lay it aside. Every sin that easily entangles. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.1, Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 2 Timothy 2.22, Paul told Timothy, flee from youthful lusts. You see, not tiptoe up to the line to see how close you can get before you cross over. Flee youthful lusts. If you play with the fire of sin, you will get burned every single time. Instead of always asking, is this or that sinful, we should be asking a very different set of questions. And we can see those in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's turn there real quickly. This has been helpful to me the, over the last few months. You see, Paul, Paul's mindset is so different than, 
than what we think sometimes. I mean, Paul was, was a liberated man. I mean, he was free. Listen to what he says here in chapter 6, verse 12. All things are lawful for me. That's an amazing statement. All things are lawful for me. But what does he go on to say? But not all things are what? Profitable. You see, that's the test. The test is not, is this sinful or not? It's like, Dad, can I read this book? Is it, is it sinful? Well, it's like, I mean, what kind of question is that? That's not the question you ask. The question is, is this book profitable? You see, that's the que- it's a whole different standard. All things are lawful for me, but, and then he goes on, I, but I will not be mastered by anything. And then a similar statement, turn over to chapter 10, same book, verse 23. Again, Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. So there's another good test. All right, so the next time you're thinking about a particular course of action, ask yourself these questions. Is it profitable? Does it edify? You see, those are the mature kind of questions that a Christian should be asking about different decisions that they have to make. Is it profitable? Does it edify? It's much different than simply asking, is this sinful? I mean, that's such a kind of lowest common denominator, mediocre kind of question. That's not the issue. Is it profitable? Paul says all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. Not all things edify. That's the test. If you never get past that mediocre kind of level, if you're always trying to toe the line, you're going to be, again, always in danger of drifting. Because you're you're trying to get as close as you can to the line without going over. Well, those, those five things, those five causes of drift are things that are primarily from the book of Hebrews itself. And then I wanted to mention two other ones uh, as we wrap this up here, two other causes of spiritual drift that are mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament. So number six, cause of spiritual drift is the schemes of the devil. Ephesians chapter 6. By the way, notice when I talked about these things of is it profitable, is it edifying, I didn't go into a bunch of particulars because it's going to be different for everybody, you see. And that's another mark of an immature child of God is they want a list of everything. This is sinful, this isn't sinful. They want a list. You know, they want the, they want the preacher, preacher, give me a list. Give me a list to obey. Just tell me. But you see, that's not the way the New Testament works. That's not Christianity. That's just Old Covenant legalism, a list of rules. You see, you're going to have to seek the Lord. You're going to have to ask for the Holy Spirit of God to give you wisdom to know what the course of action is, to know what is profitable, to know what is edifying. It's not a matter of just point to the verse. I mean, there are principles there, but a lot of times, specific things, you can't necessarily just point to the verse. You're going to have to seek God. All right, Ephesians 6, chapter, chapter 6, verse 10. Paul says here, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, to stand firm. There in uh, verse 11. Stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And many of the causes of spiritual drift that we've looked at so far this morning have really been things that are tied in with, with us. They're tied in with our sinful flesh. They're tied in with the fact that we're fallen human beings. But the fact of the matter is, is that even if we had no personal sin whatsoever to deal with, even if we had never committed a single sin our entire lives, we would still face tremendous opposition to living the Christian life. Now, isn't that an amazing statement? You see, we tend to confine everything to our sin problems. 
But even if we had no sin whatsoever, we would still face these forces trying to drive us back. We know that because the Lord Jesus Christ himself never committed a single sin. And yet he faced tremendous opposition from the devil in his life. Tremendous opposition to walking with God and believing God. So no matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how mature you are, the devil is out to destroy you. His work is like a constant wind seeking to blow you off course. And so Paul goes on to say then in Ephesians 6.14, he says, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Christ has given us all authority over all the power of the enemy. He's given us authority over all the power of the enemy. But you see, we must, we must stand firm. That's the command here. Stand firm against these things. We have to use the weapons that he's given us. I mean, you can't just roll out of bed in the morning and fall into your armor. It doesn't work that way. It would be nice if it did, but it doesn't. You've got to take up, it says here, take up the full armor of God. Not fall into it, take it up. There's activity in our part, you see. We will either stand firm against the schemes of the devil or we will drift. We can't relax because the devil never does. 1 Peter 5, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You see, he's actively seeking people to devour. He doesn't just lay back and wait for people to come to him. He goes out seeking people to devour. James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So both 1 Peter 5, James 4, they both say resist, resist. And so again, resist or drift. Only two options. And then the last cause of spiritual drift that I wanted to mention in closing here, number seven is bad company, bad company. Not the music group bad company, although they're they're bad company. <laughs> the last cause of spiritual drift that we'll look at, bad company. And I get that phrase from 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Bad company corrupts good morals. 1 Corinthians 15. And then another passage that I wanted us to look at, 2 Corinthians 6. The one there in 1 Corinthians 15 is kind of a, a statement Paul makes in passing. Bad company corrupts good morals, but here he deals with it a little bit more at length. 2 Corinthians 6, chapter, or chapter 6, verse 14. Paul says, Do not be bound together, literally unequally yoked, but it's the idea of being tied together, bound together. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? I remember David Kelly talking one time about how when you walk into a dark room and flip on the light switch... You know, the darkness doesn't struggle against the light like it's being pushed out, you know, by force. It's just gone immediately. Boom, light switch goes on, light comes, boom, darkness is gone. You see, there's no fellowship between the two. There's no mixing of the two immediately. What harmony has Christ with Belial, or what is a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, oftentimes this passage here, especially the part about 
being bound together or being unequally yoked, is used to show that a Christian shouldn't marry an unbeliever. And that, that principle is there, obviously, but what Paul is saying is a lot bigger than that. It doesn't just apply to the idea of a Christian marrying an unbeliever. It's a lot bigger. The point here is that if you are a Christian, you are not to bind yourself together with an unbeliever in any way that could lead you into compromise. It could be just a friendship that can do that. It can be a business partnership. It doesn't have to be a dating relationship or marriage or whatever. It could be things like friendships. But the point is is that if you're being led into compromise, if the relationship is causing you to drift, if the relationship is pulling you down, you cut it off. No compromise, no excuses. No relationship is worth you losing your soul over. And again, Paul sets the bar high here in, in seven one. Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your right hand is causing you to stumble, cut it off. How many souls have started out the Christian life well only to suffer shipwreck because they got bound together with an unbeliever in some way and refused to deal violently with that relationship? Do not be deceived. Now, the devil will come to you and say, you know, don't listen to that. That's legalistic type stuff. He's saying you can't have friends that are unbelievers. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is is that you're not to become bound together with an unbeliever. You see, it's more than just a casual work relationship, you know, where you see the person every once in a while. Bound together. And you ask, well, what does that mean? Well, I can't give you, again, a specific list of what that means, but the bottom line is, is you know. You know when a relationship is dragging you down. You know when someone you're bound together with is causing you to compromise. You know it. You don't need a list of rules. You know. Your conscience tells you. The Holy Spirit convicts you. You know when you're being drugged down. And when it starts to happen, you cut it off. Period. And if you're not willing to do that, don't be surprised when you end up making shipwreck of the faith. That might sound harsh, but anything less than that would be dishonest. It's happened. All right, the consequences of drifting then. Very quickly, what are the consequences of spiritual drift? We can divide them up into two categories, temporal and eternal. The temporal consequences would include things like a loss of assurance, a lack of good fruit brought forth in the person's life, and a lack of usefulness in ministry. But if left unchecked, the ultimate outcome of drifting is falling away and eternal death. And Charles really hit on this last week, and so I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but let me just read a few verses for you again. He read these last week, but we need to hear them. This one's from Matthew 24. Christ says, Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. You must endure to the end, but there's the guarantee that if you do endure to the end, you will be saved. Another one that he read last week was in Colossians chapter 1. And I love how these passages are so spread out because it's not just one person in the New Testament saying it. It's several different people saying it. You have Christ Himself say it. You have Paul say it. You have the writer to the Hebrews say it. Colossians 1 verse 21. Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So you've been reconciled. Very next verse. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. So on. Maybe just one more here. 
1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand. So they received the gospel, they're standing in the gospel, and then Paul says, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. They received it in some way, they're standing in it, and yet Paul says you've got to hold fast. You're saved if you hold fast. Otherwise, you believed in vain. See, he's not saying if you fall away, you lost your salvation. He's saying if you fall away, it shows that your belief at the beginning was a vain belief. It wasn't real to start with, you see. But the point is, is you've got to make it to the end. You've got to continue on to hold fast the word which was preached. And there are several in, in, in the book of Hebrews. We won't look at those because we'll probably hit on those later on uh, in this series. But the point is, is that if you're a professing Christian here this morning, these verses apply to you. They're for you. They're written to professing Christians. That's why they're there. The dangers of drifting are real. The consequences are eternal. And I said at the beginning then that the title for the series was Stopping Spiritual Drift, and we really didn't talk much about that this morning because, Lord willing, we'll be spending the next three Sundays talking about that. And what I want to do, what I hope to do each Sunday for the next three messages is take one phrase from the book of Hebrews that applies to stopping spiritual drift and to unfold it. In other words, if the book of Hebrews is all about the possibility of these believers drifting away, then how does the writer to the Hebrews encourage them to not drift, encourage them to get back on track? How does he do it? And what we're going to do is take a phrase each week. Next Sunday, we'll consider that phrase from Hebrews 12. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, or literally looking to Jesus. Stopping spiritual drift involves fixing your eyes on Jesus. The Sunday after that, we'll consider the phrase, let us draw near. Let us draw near, which relates to the area of prayer. And then on the last Sunday, we'll look at the phrase, encourage one another from Hebrews 3. And that last message will not only wrap up the series, but hopefully serve as something of a bridge into the small group times that will start up uh, in September. Because one of the things that we want to do in the small group times is use those times to do that very thing, to encourage one another. And so we want to look at that then and hopefully gain some things from that last sermon that can be used uh, in those small group times. All right, before we close, one more thing. I did want to end with an encouragement for anyone here who feels like they might be drifting in some measure. I mean, the first step is just to realize that you are drifting, and in some ways that's the hardest part. I mean, Jim and I, uh, Jim Kelly and I were just talking yesterday about how you can go out in a boat fishing and, you know, stop the motor and you just start fishing away, and all of a sudden you look up and you realize you've drifted hundreds of feet away from where you started. You didn't even realize it. You didn't even notice it. You just kind of wake up and it's like, man, that tree was over there last time. Now it's way over here. Drift. You're drifting the whole time, but you didn't realize it because it was happening so slowly and so gradually. And the same thing often happens in the Christian life. So just realizing that you're drifting is a blessed thing. I mean, that's grace right there to even realize where you're at. But then here's what usually happens. Someone realizes that they're drifting, and then they have the thought, you know, I can't, I can't go to God like this. I can't go to God as a dirty backslider. I've got to clean up my act first. He's not going to welcome me back like this. Or the person thinks that no matter how clean they get, God doesn't want them back anyway, that they've been cast off for good. And there's a really good passage here in the Old Testament that deals with both of those Objections, And I want to look at that here in closing. Hosea chapter 14. Hosea is right after Daniel, before Joel. Hosea 14. <clears throat> Starting in verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. So here's the call goes out. 
Everyone here this morning, if you feel like you're drifting, here's the call. Return. Return to the Lord your God. There's the invitation. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. See, there's honesty there. You realize, yeah, I've messed up. I've stumbled because of my iniquity. But you return. And then verse 2, take words with you and return to the Lord. You see, that's all you've got to take with you is some words. Everybody can take some words. It doesn't take anything special. It just takes a few words. And then it goes on and it tells you what words to take. So it makes it real easy for you. Take words with you. Say to him, take away all iniquity. You see, you don't clean up your act first. You take your iniquity to God in order to get it taken care of. Take away my... That's the first thing you say when you get back. You don't clean up first. You can't take away your iniquity. Only He can. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all because you can't make yourself better. That's the point. God gets the glory by being the one that can take away your iniquity. Don't deny Him that glory. So return with words, say to him, take away all iniquity, receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. Now here's the repentance. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again, our God, to the work of our hands. For in you, the orphan finds mercy. The fatherless finds mercy. See, we're, not gonna, we're, we're done trusting in these things of the world. We're done with that stuff. We're not going to trust in Assyria. We're not going to trust in the strength of the horse. We're not going to trust in these works of our hands. Repentance. Done with that stuff. And it's, it's, it's all good so far, but then the question comes, okay, well, what, but what is God's response? What's God going to say? Next verse. I will heal their apostasy. In the King James it says, I will heal their backsliding. And you can put drifting in there. I will heal your drifting. Go to Him. You're drifting. Go to Him as you're drifting, as a drifter. He'll heal your drifting. You see, that's the point. You go to Him that way. You go to Him as you're drifting, and He'll heal you of that. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily. See, not just casting you off, but actually accepting you back and making you fruitful. He will blossom like the lily. He will take the root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout and his beauty will be like the olive tree and his fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. Those who live in his shadow will again raise grain and they will blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. So he accepts you back. He beautifies you, causes you to bear fruit and to grow. And then even your shadow, other people are blessed by being your shadow. Those who live in your shadow will again raise grain and so on. So there's, there's the invitation this morning. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. I will heal your backsliding. I will heal your drifting. I will heal your apostasy. Take words with you and say to Him, Lord, take away all iniquity. He's the only one who can. But He's promised that He will, if you will return. Let's pray. Lord, we just marvel at Your grace. Lord, we marvel at Your faithfulness in light of our faithlessness. Lord, we marvel at Your love in light of how unloving our hearts are towards You. Oh God, I pray that You would heal the backsliding of people this morning. Lord, if there's anyone who's drifting, I pray, Lord, that You give them the grace to cry out to You to return to the Lord their God. Oh Lord, You're holding out Your hands. You've promised that You would receive them back. Not only receive them back, but make them fruitful. Make them beautiful. Lord, I pray that these things would encourage us and not, not discourage us. 
Lord, we know that ultimately if any of us makes it to the end, it's because of you, that you're the one who sustains our faith. And so we pray, Lord, this morning, increase our faith, strengthen our hearts, help us to press on in these days to take hold of the eternal life set before us, to count all things loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. We ask in His name. Amen. Well, let's be dismissed and...